Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. Today, we are reading John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, the last text we will read together in the book of John. We sit for a long while with the question, what does it mean for the disciples to be sent into the world by Jesus in the way that Jesus was sent into the world by the Father? We give doubting Thomas some love, lifting up his bravery, and really seeing the bravery it takes to hang in there through moments of doubt and to speak what you need out loud. And we step back to look at the role this gospel might imagine itself to have in someone else's life of faith. It is not the beginning and the end, but more like a starter pack or a reserve to tap when you need it, because we will all have our own story. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Hey, Amy, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I find it helps if you sing a song about how good you're doing. (laughs) The other day, I was taking my kids into school and we're like in the car and when I've just lost patience waiting for them sometimes I'm like I'm gonna wait in the car because I know I'm gonna blow my top if I stay in the house and watch how unbelievably slowly teenagers move (laughs) yeah so I was sitting in the car and one of the kids gets in the car and I'm singing myself a song and she was like why are you so happy and I was like I'm not happy (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to prevent myself from blowing up our entire family unit with my rage but I yeah. realized that it actually is, I think, confused. They think that I actually am happy. I'm yeah. not happy. I'm trying to survive the morning. That's interesting. So then they, can, then they would do the behaviors that lead to your being enraged if they, try to, if they want to make you happy. Like, what would mom most appreciate today? <laughs> I know. Mom Let's likes drag it when we move feet. as slow as humanly possible. Yeah. That makes her really <laughs> happy. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. We have moved past the crucifixion and the beginning, the first sightings of Jesus after the resurrection. We have, yeah. We have, yeah. Spring has sprung. Jesus has risen. And on, onward we go. Into and the on new, we go. Yeah. That's right. So we are in John chapter 20, once again, just picking up one verse after where we left off last time. The reading today is verses 19 through 31 from the book of John. Do you want to remind us where we're coming from? What just happened? I mean, again, I don't know how much background we need because we, we, just, we just left off the verse before. Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing I think is just that we're still, as you'll see when you start reading, we're still on Easter Sunday. And so we just, like the what's happened just before this is Mary has lingered at the tomb after Peter and the other disciple have left and Jesus has spoken to her. She's gone home and given her testimony to the other disciples. I've seen the Lord. And then um, this is going to take place later that same day. So, you know, it's been a week since we talked about that text, but in Mm -hmm. narrative time, it's been a matter of hours. 
Yeah. So all of this information about resurrection still brand, brand new. Yep. Brand spanking new. <laughs> Great. So I am reading from the NRSV, and I think I'll just dive in. You ready? I think so, yeah. Okay. So picking up in verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's really not a COVID-friendly <laughs> No. Now come here and I'm going to breathe on you. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different time. It was a different time. I was at a birthday the other day and there were candles on the cake and somebody blew out the candles. And I was like, oh, wow. wow. I haven't seen that in two years. Like that's kind of weird. Like, yeah, breathing has become a whole different kind of thing in the last couple of years. I thought we'd be done with that. Like as a culture, I guess we're not done. I I guess not. No. <laughs> I guess no, not. we're not. Yeah. One of my little um, nephews, when he was very small, like, you know. Not not a logical human yet. Um, his favorite game that he always wanted to play, which was gross even before COVID, was coughing in each other's mouths because <laughs> he, he liked the feeling of the air. Okay, that's enough. That's not yeah, what we're talking about. This is here. not what probably what John was hoping we would talk about. <laughs> not what John was, <laughs> but you know, you you gotta connect to your own life somehow. Right there, there we go. That'll preach. Okay, so as you said. It's still Sunday. It's evening now on Sunday. So yeah. this started, this all started when it was sort of still dark out, pre-dawn hours. Yeah. And now it's now it's evening on Sunday. I was surprised at the reference of like the doors of the house where the disciples had met. Even just that phrase, I guess I hadn't quite pictured the disciples as a group that held meetings, you know, as being sort of like seeing themselves as yeah. an entity unto themselves. Do you have any sense of whether, like, I don't know, does that surprise you? Or do you think it was like in the face of their teacher's death, they yeah. gathered because that's that's what you do when someone dies? Or yeah, That's such an interesting question. There, there's actually a lot packed into that verse even. The first thing that I would say is that the word house is not actually in the Greek anywhere, although mm. it's imported in a lot of English translations like the NRSV. The CEB, I think, is actually gets it a little more accurately, which is the disciples were behind closed doors. So the doors mm -hmm. are there, but mm -hmm. the house actually isn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that matters, mm -hmm. but, you know, in my mind, the door then can kind of become metaphorical. We remember Jesus saying in chapter 10, like, I am the door, I am the gate. And mm -hmm. so then it becomes more of like they're closed off to understanding or they're closed mm -hmm. off to the relationship more than it becomes like we're all together in a physical house. That said, you know, the only other reference I can really think of to the disciples gathering, I mean, of course, there's the, the supper, which they had together in the mm -hmm. farewell discourse. Mm -hmm. 
And then we also got the notice when they went to the garden uh, on Jesus's last, the last night of Jesus's life, that that was a place where they frequently gathered. And so there does seem to be some kind of group that has some kind of identity that they get mm-hmm. together. I don't know how mm-hmm. big that group is or how many, you know, like where's the boundary of who's part of that and not part of that group. Yeah. But there does seem to be at least some sort of group that has gathered along the way. That's really helpful because I think that, I mean, I was aware of those gatherings, but I I think so much of the disciples' relationships in those prior get-togethers as like each one is connected to Jesus, like he's the mm. center of the wheel, you know, oh, and there yeah. are these like spokes going out. And I hadn't thought much about their relationship to each other, but I guess this this is precisely what's happening at this moment in the story is that— yeah. You know, once once Jesus is not here on earth to play that teacher-leader role yeah. in the way that he has, you know, they need to figure out how to regroup if they if they hadn't, you know, quite had relationships that weren't mediated by Jesus before. It's it's time. That's a really helpful way of thinking about that, Amy. It was it was reminding me of my family. Like my mm. grandfather died when my dad was really young. And so my grandmother was like the matriarch of the family and everybody, like all her four kids and all of their kids and all of their kids, you know, like 50 or 60 people got together at her house, like, you know, Christmas and Easter and maybe Mother's Day, like three or four times a year, like 50 people would all gather. And she lived to be a hundred. And I remember along the way, people would say, we don't know what's going to happen when grandmother dies. Are we still all going to see each other? And it was this really kind of interesting question about, when you're all connected to that one person, what happens when that one person is gone? Right. right. I mean, what happened in our family was we kept all getting together. And so like, that's right. also what seems to be happening here, but it's really interesting to think about that shift. I, I appreciate you putting that point on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting moment for them. I feel like this is a little bit of a broken record thing to say, but but I'll point it out because every time we might as well point it out every time Absolutely. I'm, I'm guessing that the CEB there has translated instead of fear of the Jews, fear of the Jewish authorities. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 The, the more we read it, the more I'm like, that just seems so important to me to differentiate. Yeah. No, I appreciate your saying that. And, you know, we've seen that all along the way, but you, yeah, every time you got to keep saying it. We've seen people be afraid of the authorities before. We, we saw the family of the man who was born blind. They were afraid of the Jewish authorities because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. We, we've seen that kind of different differentiation. Jewish people, and the disciples are Jewish people, who are afraid. And so afraid of the Jews doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Afraid of the religious authorities is, is what makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, you're exactly right. That gets, gets misunderstood all the time. For good reason, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what, because that's those are the words that are in the NRC. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And I mean, John uses Jews, and we have to kind of yeah tease out what John is really after. Okay, and then we get the surprise arrival, <laughs> yeah. of Jesus, yeah, who I think came th- walked through the wall. <laughs> yeah. Or do you think that? Is, is that what you understand to be happening, or you think it doesn't matter to John? How does the NRSV read? Let's see. The doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. 
I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, that you've only got a few options there. One is he walked through the wall. Yeah. One is that he sort of materialized out of the air. Oh, yeah. You know, the if you follow metaphorically, like I was saying before, they're behind closed doors. Jesus mm-hmm. is the door. Like doors. Mm-hmm. I think the point is doors don't matter to Jesus. Mm, that's a really nice way of putting it instead of. I'm creating some like sci-fi novel over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you kind of, that's what your brain wants to do though. It wants a picture, you know, if you were, if you were directing the movie of this, like how would, how would Jesus appear there? I think that's a totally legit question. Well, and I think because we're again in this really like liminal space between like, you know, living an embodied existence and not and you know he's yeah. resurrected in his body but his body's ne- not necessarily behaving quite like my body does and <laughs> yeah yeah no that's a fair point and we talked about that a little bit i think it was last yeah, time i think we did and what is the nature of jesus's body and it's not entirely clear yeah it's cl- it's it's clearly not exactly like your body and my body you know it is some sort of a transformed he still mm-hmm. seems to be embodied but it's some some transformed body he's in. Yeah. I'm really interested in this. I guess it's not quite an analogy, but this this statement that Jesus makes to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Yeah. Like I picture those like SAT practice analogy questions <laughs> with the yeah. little like colon yeah. between like, between the different terms. So as the father is to me, as I am to you. Yeah. Can we like spin out that resonance a little? Like what, what is the relationship as far as we know between the father and Jesus that is here being. Yeah. Extended another level. Yeah. I mean, if you start, I love the way you asked that question when you start digging down into that, it becomes really profound really quickly. You know, like on the, if you don't think about it in those terms, it's just like, well, God sent me to the world. And so now I'm sending you into the world, which is, I mean, that's still profound in its own way. But to say God is sending me as God sent me, I send you. And then you think, well, how did God send Jesus? And it was, Jesus was in heaven with God and God sent Jesus into the world incarnated. Mm-hmm. And so now Jesus would be saying something like, you've been with me this whole time, and now I'm sending you into the world incarnated. Mm-hmm. And then there becomes something about the bodily presence of the disciples, the believers among the world. You've got to be out there with people in the way that Jesus, the way that Jesus gave up equality with God to come be among people. You've got to give up being centrality of the disciple to go out, go out in the world as well. I love that. And there was something about what the way that you said that, that I can't remember what the exact turn of phrase was, but it just, it like pulled out so beautifully that next statement in there that, that he breathed on them. You know, there's this like, you know, breathing new life into them just as, you know, uh, Adam has breath breathed into him in Genesis. It seems so... I don't, it's just so reverberant. Like it's so much, it's so much more, I think, than just saying like, God sent me and I'm sending you. Yeah. You tossed out that Genesis 2 reference kind of casually. Yeah. 
but I think it's a, I think it's a super important reference. I think that's exactly what John is after. And I really think he breathed into them might be a better understanding than he breathed mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that captures that Genesis idea. Here's the clay figurines that God has molded and then God breathes life into them. Now Jesus breathing the spirit. So these disciples become inspirited and then it's a new creation. Like to me, that's so, so important. They are in this moment, like in that little breathing moment, they became something different than they were, you know, 10 seconds earlier. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, which is pretty crazy. That's pretty Pretty crazy. crazy. Yeah. The other thing I thought of as I was trying to pull out this, you know, analogy is that Jesus brings some godliness into the world. Like Jesus has as part of his self, some, some bit of God. Yeah. And so then I was thinking about how the people who go forth then have some bit of Jesus. Yeah. As you know, that the church as like the body of, you know, the church is the body. I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot in there just in that one little statement. There is a lot in there. And as you I probably know from our reading of Paul along the way, that that is exactly the metaphor that Paul uses. The church is the body of Christ in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think John is after something kind of like that, that, you know, here's the spirit that's been breathed into them. We also talked about in the living water passages that you know, when you drink from the living water that Jesus offers, you yourself become a source of living water for others. Mm-hmm. We've seen different versions of this image along the way, that there is something now in you as a believer that is not of yourself, but that comes from God that then is overflowing, that is shareable, mm-hmm. that can be breathed onto others. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's in that about as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. You know, if you think about how exactly did God, like what was Jesus sent into the world to do? You know, mm-hmm. my head goes back first to John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that there is a, the, the source of the commission is love. And so those who are followers or followers of Jesus are in the first instance to be expressions of God's love, not judgment. God's love and desire for reconciliation with the world. The other thing that's in there is that Jesus has said on multiple occasions, none whom the Father has given me will be lost, or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. And so there is a sense in which now that responsibility is being transferred on to believers that, Mm -hmm. you know, our response, we got to keep people from falling through the cracks and making sure that nobody is is left out of the good news of God's reconciling love. I'm so glad that you brought those two sort of cornerstones up and put the laid them on the table here. Because the next thing that Jesus says in verse 23 is something mm-hmm. else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's that's not how I would have articulated what 
God sent Jesus into the world to do. How do you how do you think about that verse? That verse. <laughs> oh, that verse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is interesting the the way that the Gospel of John thinks or maybe doesn't think that much about sin. We haven't seen the phrase forgiveness of sins, I think, anywhere in the Gospel of John. Hmm. From the very beginning, we've been talking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, singular. And mm-hmm. we've talked a- along the way about sin in this gospel, not so much about wrongdoing, but about fracture of relationship. Sin is means not being in right relationship with God or something like that. So if you put all of that together and kind of dig around in it, you know, the the way that I make sense of this statement is that the world is alienated from God and God intends reconciliation with the world through reconciling love in Jesus Christ and now in the disciples. And that that's your responsibility. So if you can go and, you know, reconcile that relationship, which is the forgiveness of sins, then that is done. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to get done. And so it puts kind of a fine, it's not about judgment, right? You get to decide who is good and bad. It's, it is incumbent upon you to restore right relationship. And to the extent that you don't do that, it's mm-hmm. not going to be done. I don't know though. I, where do you, where do you go with that? I mean, I like, I like that. And I feel like I, I could, I could see that in the text for the second part. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Yeah. It feels like a little bit of a harder fit for if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven because of the specific, the specific word forgive, not if you, yeah, whatever, wipe away or something like that. But otherwise it's, it kind it seems to come a little bit out of left field Mm -hmm. that this is their charge. Yeah. I agree with that. And, you know, if you, if you back up from my sort of, sort of theological reading of it and you just say what what if in fact Jesus is just giving people power to decide who is and isn't forgiven it's interesting then to think about like what would people do with that power right mm. like i know people who would think like oh my gosh now i get to like get back at all the people i hate right like heck with you <laughs> person i don't like i'm not forgiving your sins and then you know you have control over their like eternal soul There are other people I know who would see that power and think, oh my goodness, like, like that is such good news. Like I could forgive everybody and like everybody would be Mm. forgiven. And so it's just kind of interesting to me to think about like, what, what kind of person am I, if that, if that's my charge and what, you know, what kind of person, what kind of people are we? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting to think about, I know the disciples are there because they are followers and people of faith. And they're flawed and they're, you know, yeah. like the stories of disciples in this gospel are not like they're, you know, these superhuman beings. Um, so I think that's an, an interesting thing to sit with too, you know, as especially for people who are listening, who are leaders of religious communities yeah. and what kind of power do you sort of have whether you want it or not? <laughs> yeah. And how do we hold that power? Yeah. 
knowing that we're, you know, we're none of us are superhuman folks. We just do the best we can with yeah. what we got. Like to me, if you read that and you recognize what you just said about we are flawed human beings and you take John 3.16, that God mm-hmm. is coming into the world, not in judgment, but in love, then you think, okay, the way to mess that up, like if I'm going to mess that up, which I am, the best way to enter into that situation is to just forgive and love everybody. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like if I'm going to err on one side or the other, yeah. I'm going to mess it up by being too merciful. Yeah. Which I think is what John is kind of saying God is like, but is not always, maybe not even often the way we represent God yeah. in the world, many of us. Yeah. Okay. One of the disciples wasn't there yet. Should we go on and read about him? Or do you want to say anything else about this first part? There's just one other detail in here that I think is important. And it's going to show up again in this next section that you're going to read. But when Jesus shows up, he says, Mm -hmm. peace be with you, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting of its own accord. But then the next thing he does (laughs) is show them his hands and his side where they have been pierced by the nails and by the sword. That little detail, you know, it's not enough for Jesus just to say, hey, here I am. But like, hey, here I am and here are my wounds. Yeah. Do you have ways of thinking about the importance of the wounds? Ah, oh, the way you phrase that question just like spun everything like 35 degrees to the left for me. So now <laughs> it's like everything is sort of sort of reshifted. What I was what I was going to say initially was I mean I think it's really interesting in here that we have we don't even know if the disciples recognized him. We don't know if the you know, we have all these other stories, you know, of Mary just recently not realizing it was Jesus. So we don't know if they if they need to see his hands and his side to realize mm-hmm. that it's Jesus or if they need to see his hands and his side to realize this wasn't all a dream. That terrible crucifixion really did happen and I am still in that body. You know, like mm-hmm. the the specific nature of the miracle that they're witnessing. But when you just asked it in terms of show me your wounds, I don't know, it just felt it felt a lot broader and less concrete. You know, mm-hmm. a lot a lot more like you know, in, in sort of it, leading with your vulnerabilities, like that kind of that kind of honesty. Like we're just going to start we're going to start right there. Yeah. Which is a whole other direction to take that in. Yeah. And probably, I, you know, the way you ask questions <laughs> often is uh, grows out of your own sort of answer to yeah. whatever the question is. And I yeah, think that's probably yeah. true in this case. I, I definitely think the sort of like they need to see that this is real. I think that's definitely part of it. But I also I do think it's interesting that it doesn't say they saw the Lord until after Jesus shows them his wounds. Yeah. And so there is something here about you can't actually recognize Jesus apart from his woundedness. And so it it is the marks of execution by the empire that are, it's necessary for that to be part of the conversation, part of the witness Mm -hmm. and that Jesus has now been resurrected. He still bears those marks and yet here he is alive. And I love where you take that. The next step is to say that then if we are to be incarnated in that way, then we also could 
lead with our wounds and and say, look, I've been wounded by the empire and and I've survived, you know, and that opens up a whole world of the way we interact, the way we bear witness. Mm -hmm. I really love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA. And I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the narrative lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay, I have some more questions about how they how the disciples interact with Jesus, but I think I want to read about Thomas first and then fold them into that. Okay, sounds good. Is that good okay? To me. All right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm picking up in verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Yeah. Poor Thomas was out getting a Sprite. <laughs> yeah. He missed you know, it's face. interesting, the question about like, where was Thomas and why was he there? Yeah. Because that's one way of reading it is well, he was just like, he was late or he was just like, wasn't yeah. that invested? Took a phone call. Thomas is, yeah. Yeah, he's often read that way. But, you know, the reason that they're there behind closed doors is because they're afraid. And so it, I think it's equally possible to read Thomas as actually being the brave one in the group who is out in the world doing his thing because he's not afraid of what's going to happen to him. Isn't he the one that back in, when they go to see Lazarus in John 11, isn't he the one who said, let's go do this? You know, everybody else was saying, if you go, they're going to kill you. And yeah, yes, it was Thomas in John 11 who said, let us also go that we may die with him. Yeah, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've seen in chapter 11 that he's not afraid to be out in the world, even though his life's in danger. And then maybe that's what's happening here again. He's he's the bravest of the disciples willing to risk his life. I mean, we don't I know what he's that. doing. Out there, right, we but. don't know what he's doing, but there's, we don't need to assume that he is you know, up to no good or slacking on his disciple yeah, duties disciple. or <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. the slacker disciple. Yeah. He often, yeah. he gets a bad rap. You know, people almost always call him doubting Thomas. I'm like, okay, like he's going to have some doubts here, but come yeah. on. Like he did some other things too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's so, I mean, it seems like sort of an apples to oranges comparison Yeah. because the other disciples you know, as we were saying, we don't know if they would have believed or recognized Jesus. Like, Jesus yeah. just leads with showing them, you know, yeah. leads with the visual confirmation. Yeah. 
And so they don't, they don't have any chance to even think about like, do we believe or not believe or what do we think is happening? Like it seems to unfold really quickly. So when they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. I don't, I just, I don't know if the other disciples were so much more believing. I just feel like we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because they've already got the evidence that he's asking for. He just wants the same thing they got. Yeah. Well, he also wants to touch it. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> but. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. But I mean, and or that could have been, a, it, you know, it could be one of those things where the, the other disciples said, like, we saw this and it sounds so crazy that, you know, like a when hell freezes over yeah such and such i'll believe whatever yeah i don't know i'm so curious in this narrative whether thomas you know all the disciples are recorded here saying to him as we've seen the lord and so i'm so curious whether they told him about the wounds or whether he came up with that on his own like he had some sort of intuition about like that's what really matters that's true their statement is very vague it is it's very Mm -hmm. vague it does, it, their statement is, you know, Mary Magdalene after on the Easter, at the end of the Easter text, after she, Jesus has revealed himself to her, she comes back and says to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And yeah. now then when they say we've seen the Lord there, that's the same mm. report she made. Mm-hmm. Just now it's, you know, it's a, it's a group instead of just her. But that seems to be the report that you make when you, <laughs> when you have realized what's happened. Yeah. You say, I, or we have seen the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. It just, it leaves a lot open. It does. It seems significant, maybe more significant to me that like he doesn't get breathed on. Does that yeah. come up or do we just sort of brush? brush <laughs> I've never thought fact? about that before, Amy. <laughs> yeah. The I've never thought about breath. that before. Mm. Well, then I guess it doesn't come up later. <laughs> Which is almost interesting in and of itself that like we might read that and say like that's where the real power is and that's the sort of, you know, quote unquote magical transference of power ritual. But sometimes it doesn't happen and it's still okay. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know, is it? Yeah, and I don't know whether the, the breathing happens to the group. That's also, that's an interesting, I'd have to go back and look at that. He breathed. On them. Yeah. Now I'm wondering whether Jesus went around and like breathed <laughs> on each of them individually, which I think is probably not what happened, but like he breathes his spirit like into the group of disciples. Yeah. If you read it the second way, then if you become joined to the group of disciples, then you mm-hmm. are also part of that inspirited um, mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. I think I like that better. Than- so each individual person does not necessarily have to receive the breath of the spirit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I'm tracking down some like potential heresies <laughs> right here. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of danger of heresy in this conversation. <laughs> there is, yeah, and especially when you're talking a little bit on the fly, you can you never quite know what you're going to trip into. Yeah, well, we're just thinking aloud. That's all. Yeah, I like we're that. We're just thinking. And so far, the text doesn't doesn't have any opinion about what Thomas says, right? Like John, the narrator, doesn't. At least as far as I yeah. can tell. It's just. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any judgment here. And, I, you know, I think there's a question 
later on in the next section of the text, mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. How, to what extent Thomas is being judged and, and for what, but not here. Yeah. One of my favorite things, by the way, is that the word Thomas means twin. Mm. And so it says Thomas, the one also called Didymus. Didymus also means twin. And so it's like, his name is like Twinny Twinerson or something like that. You know what I mean? Like he's got two names that both mean twin. That's really weird. Now, yeah. I, I keep thinking like, what's another name that means Bobby? But that's not how, we don't really do that anymore. <laughs> I don't know. What does yeah. your name mean, Robert? Uh, I don't know. I, I looked it up once. I don't know. Oh, I, never kn- yeah, I never know how much stock to put. I could Google it real quick if you want. <laughs> I think the people want to know what Robert means. Dr. Google, what does Robert mean? Bright fame. Oh. <laughs> you- oh. Here I am with a worm-themed podcast. Like, how much <laughs> brighter or more famous could you be? Worm-themed Bible podcast host. That's <laughs> that's lovely, Bobby. Yeah, what Bright does Amy fame. mean? Yes, like the word amiable, you know, oh, like yeah. beloved. Like oh, yeah. you are. Yeah, it's so beautiful. <laughs> We're beloved. Both of those are better than Twenty Twinerson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Yeah. Probably true. So then I'm going to pick up in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Yeah. What do you think that week was like? Like a whole week passed. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's like a, it's a funny question, but it's also a serious question. Like, did yeah. he, like, does he just keep hanging with the disciples and, or that, I don't know, does it create some, do you imagine there's some kind of tension or? That's an interesting question. They've had really different experiences where they had, you know, rather they all had an experience that Thomas didn't have. So like they're in pretty different places it's been long enough now that thomas has been with them that he he hasn't gotten any Mm follow-up that it's Mm -hmm. sort of the community Mm -hmm. has its existence now it's it's doing its new thing and thomas still hasn't been given anything more and yet he is still welcomed among them to me that's kind of interesting yes he's still believer yeah he is welcome he's as far as we can tell he's welcome among them he's still hanging out with them a week later i just can only imagine that this would have been pretty awkward yeah and i think it's i think it's powerful that it's a week later and thomas is still with them it says something about him and it says something about them and Mm -hmm. i think it also says something about you know one of the things that we've seen throughout this gospel is that people come to understanding who jesus is in different ways and over different periods of time we saw that with the disciples in the first chapter of John already. We saw it with Nicodemus in John mm-hmm. 3, and then he shows up again and again with the woman at the well. Now we've got Mary who has seen Jesus at the garden, and then we've got disciples who have seen Jesus and seen his wounds. We've got Thomas who hasn't yet come to believe. Mm-hmm. And so there is something here about the diversity of experience and 
not assuming that everyone has to have exactly the same experience in order to become part of the community. I think that is so important because, you know, while Jesus does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So yes, okay. So it would have been great if you hadn't needed that. He also gives Thomas exactly what Thomas said he needed. Yeah. Which was more than he had given the other disciples. Yeah. You know, Thomas really is met, exa- he, he's met exactly where he is. And I think that's really, that's, that's really powerful. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, that line um, that you were talking about, happy are those who don't see and yet believe. You know, there isn't a sort of an implied judgment there, but it doesn't actually say happier than or more blessed that are. Mm. You know, it just says, you believe, did you believe because you saw me? Happier those who believe even though they didn't see me. And so, I mean, mm. maybe Jesus is saying, I wish you could have believed without seeing. But I think what you're saying about he gave Thomas exactly what he needed without scolding him for it. He just said, you asked for this and here you go. And then I think there's going to come a time he is suggesting when people in future generations are not going to have the option of just sort of seeing me mm-hmm. show up once I've been ascended. And so those people also bl- are going to be blessed and happy, yeah. even though they're not going to have access to this. Yeah. I like to try to read that without a like better or worse or just mm-hmm. like difference. You know, and it's making me think too, I really like that. And it's, and it's making me think, it's making me wonder again about what that week was like in between mm-hmm. his, his statement of doubt and when he gets this confirmation that maybe there was not necessarily strife between him and the community, but some, he would have been, he, it would have been easier for him. Not that he could have just turned a, a switch and believed, but it would have been easier on him if he hadn't, you know, had that week of doubt and unknowing and yeah. tension. So yeah, but, but maybe it is a matter of fact statement that it is, it is a great and blessed thing to believe without seeing. Yeah. Do you make anything much from Thomas's response after, after he has this opportunity to, to like physically confirm that it's Jesus as he had wanted? He says, my Lord and my God. Yeah. I guess I would have expected like just my Lord or I don't know. What do you make of that twofold naming? I have so many thoughts about it. <laughs> I want to hear them all. Yeah. All your thoughts. I, Not I'm all curious. of them. So you start and I'll tell you when to stop. No, I'm just kidding. I want to hear all your I thoughts. I think that's exactly the right question. Like, why does he say it that way? And why are there two different affirmations there? there I, I've got three different ways of thinking about this. Okay, I'm ready. Number one. Number one. It's about incarnation. So my Lord is a way that you would refer to your like human superior mm-hmm. person that, you know, is, has responsibility for you. Mm-hmm. And God is a way, obviously, of referring to the deity. And so to say my Lord and my God is a way of acknowledging kind of the fullness of who Jesus is, both God and human. Okay, so if we go with that, then he does better than the other disciples who just say yeah. they saw the Lord. Like then he, yeah. he, yeah, he ups things a little bit. Okay, great. I love it. Way number two. Yeah. 
In a post-colonial reading, one might suggest that the terms Lord and God were terms that were reserved for Caesar, uh, or at least were attributed to Caesar, mm-hmm. who is both understood to be the patron of all patrons, so the Lord of all lords, and the also often claimed to um, have divine status. And so for Thomas to say to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, uh, is attributing the titles of Caesar to somebody who is not Caesar. Mm-hmm. And therefore, is a counter-imperial claim. I like it. You do not seem entirely convinced by that. No, one. I started thinking. You had me. You got my brain going in a different direction. But I'm gonna hold my tongue until you finish. Uh, until you finish number three. Number three is a distinctively Jewish way of thinking about what's happening here, and it's related to the names of God in the Hebrew Bible. You probably know more about this than I do, but here's my version of it. God is called two different things in the in the Hebrew scripture, as you well know, Elohim and mm-hmm. Adonai. So mm-hmm. Elohim, God, Adonai, Lord. Mm-hmm. And so my God, my Lord is acknowledging both of those names of God. In the rabbinic tradition, when the question comes up, why are there two different names for God in the Hebrew scriptures? One of the answers is, These are ways of naming two different characteristics of God. Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, Elohim, God, is manifest God's judgment in the rabbinic interpretation, and Adonai, Lord, manifests God's mercy in rabbinic interpretation. And so to say my Lord and my God is to say Jesus is the one who encompasses both judgment and mercy witnessed to by the God of the Hebrew scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right, reasonable? Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's so funny, you know, reading this in, in English or in Greek instead of in mm-hmm. Hebrew. Like my mind just doesn't go to that sure, yeah. place. But yes, of course, like, you know, there are in that in the Hebrew Bible and the Torah, there are there are stories that are told where the God is called Elohim and there are stories that are told where the God is called Adonai. And then there, are, and then there's like the the central. You know, Jews don't really talk about a creed, but if we did, it would be probably the Shema, which is Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai yeah. Echad. Like the Lord is our God. Lord and God are one. There's one, yeah. and it's both of them. These are not yeah. two separate entities. So I really yeah. like I really like the idea of of Thomas making a similar statement. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, if we imagine that Christians in the first century were reading the Hebrew scriptures actually in the Septuagint Greek, then that language wouldn't have had, you wouldn't have actually had to translate all of that. These are actually the words, you know, Elohim yeah. is Theos and Adonai is Kurios. And so those words just come straight out of the Greek version of the Hebrew scripture. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Now, I don't know, you know, we just put a lot of weight on <laughs> one one little sentence from Thomas, but I think yeah, there's so much when he says, my Lord and my God, like there is so much in there. And your point that he's done better than the others, I think is a really important point because nobody in John's gospel has said my God to yeah. Jesus. Yeah. They've said my Lord before, but not my God. Yeah. And so Thomas, despite kind of coming belatedly, ultimately gets it 
more close to the mark than anybody else. Yeah. I'm not sure what exactly it was that you said when you were describing your approaches to that line, but something got me thinking back again to John chapter 11 that we were talking about before when Jesus says to his disciples, we need to go back to Judea. And they say, you've lost your mind. We're going to get killed if we go to Judea. And Thomas says, we're, you know, we're, we're going with you and, you know, we can die with him. Like this is, yeah, yes, it's dangerous. And yes, we're going to go. And it just had me thinking if it is his belief that like death, the threat of death is real and he's willing to face that death. It, I don't know, something about like his, his understanding the death of Jesus as real and permanent. Yeah. Even if it was incorrect. Yeah. It, for some, it like elevates even more so to me the bravery that he showed or the bravery and loyalty that he showed in chapter yeah. 11 to say like death is real and permanent and we're here with you. We're going with you. Yeah. And so it's not the same as saying, you know, death has lost its sting. Like death very much has a sting, but not to let that sting be the driver yeah. of your decisions is an enormously like powerful way to live in the world. So yeah. I think I just want to give some more props to Thomas. Like, yeah, his his course of development here has been different, but he's a pretty, he's an interesting, he's an interesting character. He and is. I like him. He very much is. You know, Amy, I appreciate your saying that so much because it's taken me back to other conversations that we've had several times in the past few weeks. You know, where we talked about, you know, Jesus told his disciples not to follow him and Peter did follow, Peter struck the Mm -hmm. slave's ear and then Peter followed and denied. And we had several conversations along the way about death and to the extent that you think death is the end, you're going to lose your nerve, Mm -hmm. which maybe Thomas didn't actually in chapter 11, which is kind of interesting. But when you read this issue that we've been talking about with the, you've got to see the marks on his hands and his side to know, you know, Jesus said, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. Now, maybe now's the later where it's, yes, I died. And look, the marks of death are in my body. And yet I'm now alive. Yeah. So now on this side of the resurrection, maybe the point of seeing those marks is, you know, before Thomas was brave, despite knowing death was the end. Mm -hmm. And now maybe there has been a transformation where you know now that life is more powerful than death. Not to say that you're not going to die, but to say that death is not the end of that story, Mm -hmm. that it does inspire another kind of possibility. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it makes doubting Thomas a little more complicated. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Thomas is, yeah, I think there's a lot to like about Thomas. All right. We have just two more verses. Are you ready to go on? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to pick up in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. It's like a little postscript. Yeah, I think that does read kind of like a postscript. And it's interesting because it reads like the end of the book. And yet there's another chapter to go. 
Mm-hmm. So some people have thought that maybe this was an original ending to the book or an ending to a source within the book. Hmm. That's interesting. I could see that. But it's also really relevant right at this exact moment when we've just had this whole conversation about what is it going to take for you to believe? Like, if you waited a chapter to say this kind of thing, then, you know, it wouldn't ring quite as true as when you read it right here after this interaction with Thomas. Okay, that's, I love that framing. And I'm going to, okay, so I'm going to ask you the question that I had planned to ask you, but you've already sort of started to answer it, I think. Why report that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples who were told already believe? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- why is he still doing signs for them? I mean, it, it seems like not to be for our benefit because it doesn't tell us what they were. Yeah, I mean, so there's a question about when did Jesus do these other miraculous signs? And I never really thought about mm. it this way, but you're sort of reading it as right sort of here. And I now am. He I'm reading it as after. Signs. You're right, but it doesn't say it was after. I've always read this as like in his lifetime, he did lots of stuff and we just wrote down some um, of them. A little sampling. Which we thought would be sufficient unto your belief. Yeah. Huh. In either case, it's interesting that signs are seen as being necessary for belief when throughout the whole gospel, Jesus has been kind of irritated that people need signs in order to believe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, but also also sort of maybe begrudgingly acknowledging that this seems to be the case. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Maybe I wish human beings were different than you are, but yeah. I know this is how you are, and so this is what I'm going to give you. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've always read this as like, look, these ones that we've given you are really pretty amazing. And if you don't, like, if you still have doubts, like there were so many more things that I could have told you, Mm -hmm. I just didn't do it. So it's sort of like, you know, it's like there is an abundance. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an abundance of evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that, you know, this is like the breaking of the fourth wall. Like when you're watching a sitcom or whatever, and they look into the camera and they start talking to you as the audience, like that's what's happening right here. Suddenly we're being addressed directly so that you will believe. And you're like, me? (laughs) (laughs) How did you know I was here? (laughs) Yeah. It's just such an interesting move. And so like, you've kind of had the sense that, you know, that's been the whole point of the gospel of John is like telling us things so that we will believe. And then now here is, you know, the curtain is pulled back. And and in fact, that's exactly what's been going on. I do think, think it's interesting though because i feel like where we've sort of been moving since january has been something like we have to believe the testimony of others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we all have to have our own experiences that we make our own mm-hmm. and whatever that experience is like doesn't the exact nature of your experience doesn't matter that much it's just that you come to believe Mm-hmm. And maybe this doesn't contradict that in any kind of a way, because it is saying like, look, here's the testimony of one believer who is the gospel writer, John, yeah, who is drawing on other testimonies. And so here's their testimony. And then, and then you have your own experience and the testimony of others. But it does seem to put a little bit more weight on this gospel as the sort of source of belief or the instigator of belief than where I thought we were headed until yeah. we got to right here. Yeah. You know, 
Okay, so as as we've already recognized, I read this as referring to doing signs, you know, right there in that moment yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, in pretty close proximity to the passage we just finished. So, so that probably is not the right reading. But either way, reading this section had me thinking about an interview that I heard with the new head of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And she was saying... I can't remember what the question was that was posed to her, but she was saying that rabbinical school is not really job training to be a rabbi, which is probably true of most jobs. Like you get all kinds of education and then you have to figure out how to do the job once you start the job. But that it's there to like to dig a deep well and fill it as much as you can so that when the work is hard you have a center to come back to and some memories and some te- like sort of like a deep embodied memory of what, you know, faith and comfort and connection can be. And then eventually maybe your work also starts filling your well, but like that it's, you have the, you have to have the faith in the first place to start down that path. Yeah. And then what they're giving you is not exactly training for the next step, but it's like sort of this acknowledgement that like the next step is going to be really hard. Yeah. You know, like living, living as a follower of Jesus in this community that's being described in this text when Jesus is no longer here on earth with them, that's going to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe some of the bonus signs were like... <laughs> I don't know, just to dig their well a little deeper, even if they yeah. didn't need it to believe in that moment that, yeah. I don't know, there's some recognition that you're going to need some reserves. I love that, Amy. I really, I think there's a lot to that. It kind of no matter where you place the, like, when did the miracles occur? This mm-hmm. idea that the reservoir is deeper than mm-hmm. the bit you've been given here. Like, there is more there. And that also helps me make sense of what I was just asking a little bit ago. Because, like, the testimonies of believers throughout time since the writing of the gospel is also stuff that could be added, you know? So this is sort of saying you've got to start someplace, like Mm -hmm. come and see Mm -hmm. has been a theme in this gospel. And so here's a starting place for you. And here's a framework in which you can interpret your own experience. If you have experience, but you don't have any understanding of like how this has played out for other people, then you can't make sense of what's happening to you. Yeah. And, and so here it is. And until you have your own belief, like here you can believe on the basis of these mm-hmm. stories. And mm-hmm. on, on the mornings that you have doubt, as Thomas had doubt, mm-hmm. you can go back and have these stories. Mm-hmm. I really love that. And it draws the tradition back together instead of saying, here's, here's the gospel. So this is all you need. It's saying, yeah. here's the gospel as a starting point. Mm-hmm. for this difficult thing that that's going to take more than just this. And it's so, it's interesting for me to think about this, you know, some of this as like sort of job training for the job of how are you yeah. going to start? How are you going to start a church people? Yeah. Like you got some big work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, what are you going to need to sustain you through that? Yeah. This also pushes me back to that line that we were talking about earlier, where Jesus says to the, to Thomas, blessed are the ones or happy are the ones who don't see and yet believe because like now that now that the gospel is addressing me 
<laughs> then it's clearer to say like, oh, that's me. He's talking about me, right? Like I'm the blessed one, mm-hmm. the reader of the gospel who don't have the benefit, at least most of us, mm-hmm. of Jesus showing up and saying, here's my body yeah. and my wounds. And so we have to believe without seeing. And so that does kind of give you a little more sense of, it's an acknowledgement that this is a hard thing and that maybe Thomas couldn't do it and maybe the disciples couldn't do it. But there's a sense in which, you know, mm. maybe, maybe we can do it. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a beautiful and complex passage. I feel like there's a lot. There's a lot. Sometimes we read and I'm like, I don't know what people are going to preach on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think there's, I think there are a lot of nice possibilities in here. Yeah, I think so. What's really coming to the front for you? I think where my energy has been drawn is to the conversation we were having way back at the very beginning of this text when Jesus says, is that analogy, as the Father sent Mm. me, so I am sending you. And just the way that we were sort of digging through, like, well, what on, like, what are the implications of that? Mm-hmm. And then sort of paired up with the, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. You know, this is the sort of great commission in John's gospel. Matthew gives us a very different one, but this is what kind of what Jesus tells the disciples to do. Peace be with you. And then I'm sending you the way I was sent. I think there's something really important about that. And this idea of incarnation we were talking about that the way that Jesus loved the world or the way that God loved the world in Jesus was to become incarnate among them. And I think there is a clear imperative for followers of the gospel, for believers in Jesus, to also be incarnated in the world mm-hmm. in love. And so to, to come into the world with a posture of love for the world and a desire to reconcile the world and be a part of it, I, that's you made a comment. Of, I can't even remember which podcast it is. Uh, I, I think maybe it was ch- chapter twelve, but where Jesus loved them as His own, mm-hmm. and that sense of you know the the shift that we were talking about then as it went from like there's an object out there which is the world which God loves to in the incarnation God comes to be part of the world which He now loves as His own. Mm-hmm. And so if we take that and import it into this sort of analogy mm-hmm. of as I sent you, or as God sent me, so I send you, then it is don't treat your neighbor as an object who's out there, who is an yeah. object of your love, but actually become incarnate amongst your neighbors and become one of them, know what it's like to be them, and then love them from the inside instead of from the outside. And I think that's a really, like, if we could achieve that as sort of this is the way the church yeah. is in the world. I think that would be amazing. I think that would be trans- transformational for for us yeah. and for our neighbors as well. That draws me back to that notion. We've, we've struggled all, at least I have, all the way along with the, the balance between mercy and judgment in mm-hmm. John's gospel. And it comes right to a point in this forgive people's sins and they're forgiven, don't yeah. and they're not. And you know, I really think there is something about that. If you become incarnate in the world and you understand the people and come to love them as your own, then your orientation t- toward them is going to be forgiveness. It's not yes. going to be judgment. Yes. And so if you can actually become incarnate, then you will know how to love in the way that God loves, which is a, uh, a merciful and forgiving love rather than a, a, judge- a posture of judgment of the world. 
So, I'm, I mean, this text makes me very hopeful about what mm. uh, my faith could be. Yeah. A little cynical, maybe, about how it often <laughs> is lived out in my own life and in the life of others. But I, I think there's a really beautiful idea here about what it could mean to be a, a follower of Jesus. That's so beautiful, Bobby. And it takes me back, you know, the way you were talking about really loving your neighbor as as your own, like as your own self and being, Yeah. It it takes me back to some of those like, kind of mystical images we had in our mind as we were reading the very beginning of these texts where things that you thought were boundaries and were separate things, like there's a word that comes down, but no, the word is God. It's not a word from God. Like everything that you thought was a boundary is not actually, is not a boundary. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of mind blowing. It's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Where does your head go when you read this text? I don't know whether to be happy with my consistency or disappointed with my creativity, (laughs) but I think I keep circling around a lot of the same ideas in these last few texts in John. And so, so this is what's really rising up for me. The role, the role of doubt, the space for doubt that is allowed in this text you know, that that Thomas continues to dwell among these other disciples. And whether it was a little uncomfortable or not, we don't know. But he, I, th- I think it is not so easy to state our doubts and questions yeah. in communities of faith, whether that's religious faith or belief mm-hmm. in anything. There's a lot of pressure to just like quietly not be sure, <laughs> but yeah. carry on behaving as though you're as sure as everyone else is. It's a lot, it's a much easier route to go. But if Thomas hadn't just put it right out there and said, this is what I'm going to need to believe, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have gotten what he needed to believe. And now we see later in the text, if he hadn't gotten what he needed to believe, he wouldn't have been the one to put together this, my Lord and my God. Yeah. And of course, like, we can't all expect that kind of response when we say, this this is what I need, and now it's going to happen. But this can be at least a, this is how we want it to be, you know? And I, I just, I think we need to create, continue creating, continue building and rebuilding communities that can hold space for doubt and let people mm-hmm. articulate their doubt and see a relationship between faith and doubt and not just as like we're going to tolerate it because we're tolerant people, but I love that. Maybe who knows? Maybe some good will come of it. Yeah, maybe in fact the doubter will understand things we we have not understood. We have not understood, right? Like that, like Mary, who Mary, who was grieving, needed to stay at the grave longer, and she, you know, like everyone. I just feel like there's so many stories in this text of people doing the thing they need to do. It's not necessarily like the paradigmatic right thing to do, but it's just their honest response to what's going on. And that's the thing. Like if you are, if you are honest and earnest in doing what is true for you, it can, it can get you pretty far. I love that, Amy. And it's making me think about Peter who unfortunately in the narrative lectionary we, we dropped Peter's story. This is the last mm. thing we we're going to talk about in the Gospel of John. The last time we really saw Peter as a named character. I mean, we saw him run into the, running to the tomb. And mm-hmm. presumably he believed in that experience. Prior to that, we saw him um, denying Jesus 
around the mm-hmm. fire where he was sitting mm-hmm. with the guards and the officers. In the next chapter, the very last thing that happens in the gospel is Jesus reconciles with Peter. And that just reminds me of that, you know, Peter did his thing. He lived he lived out loud yeah. and he made some mistakes and yeah. he ended up denying Jesus in a way that seemed pretty serious at the time. And yet that relationship is restored in the end. Right. That is that was not the end. Yeah. Not the end. I love that emphasis on the things that we see, the characters that we see who may appear as though they're not getting it, maybe the ones who actually are getting it most deeply. Mm-hmm. I Eventually. love that. Yeah. Well, this has been quite a quite an experience reading John. I've never read John before. Yeah. Yeah. And we we're moving on next time to on. the book of Acts. That's right. Acts chapter nine, verses one through nineteen A. Which is the conversion of Saul, who becomes Paul. Not a very creative name change. No. <laughs> it's actually his we'll talk about this next time probably, but his name actually doesn't get changed in this text. It's just the Greek form and the Hebrew form of the same name. Oh. That's a conversation for another day. It is. It is. It is. Well, it was lovely talking with you this week as always. And I will see you next time. See you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Barn. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Sherry McLaughlin and Amanda Hecht. Join us again next time as we move on to the book of Acts with chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Until then, keep on digging.